Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 43. And the last time, the message was titled Messiah the Servant. If we could put up the image of the servant's pyramid, uh, you can check this out. We're video, we're online video now. So the cool thing is when you look at the video messages, you could see the different slides and such. And we went over this servant's pyramid. And, you know, in Isaiah's prophecies, he does speak about my servant, my servant, my servant. But it's also contextual. Who is he speaking of at times? He'll speak of unbelievers that God uses to accomplish his goal all the way up through awesome, speaking about Jesus Christ before he even came to earth. Uh, and again, you have to follow the context there. Uh, one thing that I just wanted to make clear is that, you know, over here at the top rung, since Christ, our Je- Jewish and Gentile believers, right, have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And if we're called to be followers of Christ, then we also are called to be servants. And this morning I'm going to talk a little bit about, briefly about purpose. Uh, and as believers, we really should be asking the Lord, you know, what do you want me to do? Where do I fit in? How can I serve the kingdom? So that's very, very important. Uh, this morning, the message is titled, is titled, um, God is Faithful. I've said, it went somewhere. It happens when you hit 50. But it did come back, thank God. Uh, God is Faithful. And God is faithful. And unfortunately, we're going to see a contrast between his people uh, who were called by his name, who were unfaithful during this time period. Uh, But God, you know, he saves the day. He sends his Messiah. He rescues his people. But understand that this prophecy happened in the turn of the 6th century, uh, excuse me, turn of the 7th century B.C. Isaiah is looking all the way forward to roughly... 6th and 5th century B.C., and things that actually have not happened yet, but talking about the great work that God was going to do in relieving his people from the captivity of Babylon. This is where they find themselves uh, in the Babylonian kingdom, no, no sovereignty, separated from their homeland. But he's going to say, listen, pack your bags in essence. I'm going to do a great work, a great miracle, and I'm going to send you back to Israel. So that's the context, and we're going to see that in five parts. So if we could jump in, Isaiah 43. It says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to them, North, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, 
I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So one out of five is basically that God is encouraging his people to say to them, every step of your life, I'm with you. Including when those are difficult steps. And I'm going to tell you something. The cool thing is this, all these New Testament counterparts. When you read the Gospels, Jesus speaking. He's speaking Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's speaking for for God and, and giving us all these encouraging words. So it's so cool because everything that we find in the Old Testament, for believers in the New Testament, we also find counterpart scriptures, which are really neat. But he has to, God here in this particular time, this is pre-Christ, he's got to encourage his people because they're mentally and spiritually and emotionally not prepared to leave the captivity of Babylon and go back to Israel. So he's, he's getting them excited. You know, he's encouraging them. He's speaking about what he's going to do. And he says, I created you. God created us. Think about that for a moment. He says, I formed you. I redeemed you. I called you by my name. There's billions of people on the planet, and he knows everyone here. He knows us all by name. He says, you're mine. Well, I like that. I like that I'm owned by God. It's great. He says, don't fear. And Jesus, again, in, in the New Testament, says the same thing. He has, tells us not to fear, not to worry. Right? He's always with us. And the cool thing is, as believers, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So a part of God, don't know how he does it, upon salvation, resides inside of us. We're never alone. Now, you, you read some of this, right? Going through the waters, going through the fire. And some of you might feel, man, I feel like I'm being burned up last week. I feel like I'm drowning. But God is there. Call out to him, right? It's, it's an intimate relationship. Um, and the most important thing out of this whole thing is the part about redemption. God redeemed the people physically out of, out of slavery, literally in Babylon. And Jesus came to redeem us out of the slave market of sin. Way more important, right? Because it has eternal consequences, not just what happens here. So verse 2, passing through the waters, uh, walking through the fire, it's metaphoric. Whatever life throws at us, God's with us. Now some preachers teach this feel-good preaching, and it's really a lie, that if you have enough faith and you pester God enough, my paraphrase, he'll give you anything you want. Health, wealth, this, that. That's really not scriptural. Jesus said this in John 16.33. Jesus said, in this world you will My emphasis, have tribulation, but be encouraged. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It's almost like when you're playing cards, and one trumps one card, and then another card trumps the one that beat you. Jesus says, I've I've overcome the world. Now, we may not feel the full results of the weight of that yet, but we will, and it'll be eternal. So very encouraging, very exciting. Uh, He speaks about uh, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Seba. Now, there's a little, you know, feel, I follow the theologians because it's, it's fun and different Bible teachers and such, but some theologians get really testy, really upset when we try to claim everything that's in the Old Testament for ourselves. And actually, they're right in, in many instances. Some of these things are indigenous to Israel. When we're talking about coming back from Babylon, it isn't about us. It's about Israel. When he speaks about these nations, he's speaking about things that are happening to Israel, but... Again, many times, right, majority of times, is a New Testament counterpart. God doesn't change the way he does business. He loves people, Old Testament, New Testament, he loves his people. 
and he wants to encourage us. And that's not hard to parse. But contextually, verses 5 through 6, again, this, it's, it isn't for us. He's calling, God is calling nations from the north. He's calling them from the south, the east, and the west. Bring my people back. It's not for us. Um, and, and, you know, when you talk about Egypt, well, that was a, a, a local kind of location. In, in essence, he did call his people out of Egypt. When he called his people out of Babylon, they literally were scattered everywhere. Babylon was a huge empire. So they literally did come from the east and the west and the north and the south. And under Cyrus the Persian, conquered Babylon and uh, took favor upon the Jews and sent them back home, which was great. It was a great celebration. Now, in 1948, Israel became a nation, and that happened again, right? After World War II, not that, you know, the world was in chaos, uh, Israel becomes a nation, and same thing. Israel, uh, Jewish people came from Russia, they came from the south, uh, you had the Ashkenazi Jews, the Sephardic Jews, they came from all over to regather into the nation. So you see these layers of prophecy, and in our future, or in the world's future, this will happen one more time after the Lord's second coming. He's going to regather his people as well back to Israel. Pretty neat. Uh, and then we hear about this highway in the Millennial Kingdom that goes straight to Jerusalem to Jesus so people can worship him. There's going to be really a lot of neat things that are going to happen in the future. But verse 7, he tells us that he created us, right? He created them, but he also created us for his glory. Purpose. That's a very powerful word, purpose. Motivational speakers use that. Uh, manipulators use that. They get you your attention. Some of these words just have a lot of punch. However, this is completely legitimate because God does have a purpose for all of us. It isn't for a man or an organization to capitalize on it. It's for a relationship between God and his people, especially individually. And the question is, do you know your purpose? Right? Is that something you'd like to know? It's good to get people to pray for you, to, to ask, what is my purpose? What, in small way, can I serve the Lord, the living God, the creator of everything? You know, And it's almost like a, an appreciation because of all he did for us, especially the Lord Jesus dying for our sins. So purpose is very important. Now, this is, this is really good stuff that we're going through. Right? It's very encouraging for them, and it's extremely encouraging for us. Continue on, verse 8. He says, bring out the blind people. Now, this isn't, they're not actually disabled. They're spiritually blind. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? I have to, I'm sorry, I have to laugh for a moment because sometimes thoughts pop in and I have to decide, do I want to say that or not? But um, I don't know if you saw the video of Shirley MacLaine on the beach saying, I am God. That's really weird. 
But so what God is saying here is not Shirley McLean, not us. Even Mormons, they believe that um, the God that we serve used to be a Mormon man. And then when he died, a good Mormon was elevated into godhood. And, and then, you know, we, if we're good Mormons, we, when we die, we could have our own universe and be gods. That's ridiculous. God says before that religion even started in the 1800s, there is no God before me. He's very serious about that. No such thing as polytheists. Multiplicity of gods, millions of gods, freakish gods, half animal, half people, hybrids. It eliminates a lot of things. And it, really, it's common sense. Could you imagine if there were like millions of gods running around? They'd be fighting all the time. <laughs> Think about that. They'd be all vying for territory. and It, it just defies common sense. But God says, there was no God before me, nor will there be any God after me. Very important. So two out of five is God summons humanity, Jews and Gentiles, to follow him. Well, that's everybody back in those days. There was nobody outside of a Jew or a Gentile. So he he summons humanity to follow him as he proves himself to exist. Now, let me explain what this means. Well, first of all, you know, and again, you you can take things wrong. If you have not really studied the Bible, if you're not prayed up, if you're not uh, really trying to find the truth, God's not being mean here. What, he, what he's trying to do is get the spiritually blind and the spiritually deaf. They hear, but, but they're, it's not, they're not taking it in. Jesus spoke about that too in the New Testament. They, they see, but they're not perceiving. And God is saying, all you doubters, I want you to come together and let's have a discussion here. This is cool because God gave us a big brain, and it's just an amazing thing the way he is. He likes to reason with us, even for those that have turned their back on him. He likes to, to win people back to him. So the most hard-hearted here, um, he's calling them to be gathered together because what he's doing is he's going to do this great work. Now remember, at the time that Isaiah wrote this, Babylon didn't even rise to power yet. So this is a prophecy. This happens well over 100 years before this whole situation took place. And some might have read Isaiah if they were hard-hearted and said, oh, he's, he's a kook. He's crazy. There's, there's no way this is going to happen. Well, sure enough, it did. The Babylonians did rise to power after the Assyrians. They conquered much of the known world. And in 586 B.C., after a long siege, they got into Jerusalem, they conquered the Jewish people in the south, and expatriated them to the kingdom of Babylon. So... Right before their eyes, the people could read the scroll and go, oh my goodness, this is happening in our time period. So what God is saying is, and it's all because of the wickedness and a lot of the evil that was being, it just the world was in chaos, sort of like in World War II. The whole world was in chaos. So what he's saying is, but just rest assured, after 70 years, according to the prophets that I spoke to, I'm going to bring you back to your land. And again, people would have looked at that and said, no way. Babylon's going to last forever. But they didn't. We, have the, we can do that with hindsight. That's with the benefit that we have is hindsight to look back. But God was saying it before it happened. So what he's trying to do is get the deniers together and say, watch what I do, watch how I bring my people back, now will you believe? And God does that a lot. And I tell you what, I've done that when I try to help people to understand, especially doubters, that there is a God. Well, look at this. Well, look at what he said about microbiology, but before the microscope was invented. Well, look what he said about the cosmos and the shape of the planets and the trajectory before the telescope and the computer were invented. People like, you know, so I try to say, look at these amazing things that God says that most people don't know because our culture is Bible illiterate. 
when you actually start going through it, God is saying, look, I, I show myself to be real. And I talk about these things before they actually happen. It's very exciting. Now, let me stop for a minute. There is a term in behaviorism called cognitive dissonance. Has anybody ever heard that? Cognitive, some of you? Okay. Cognitive dissonance basically is when you hold uh, mutually exclusive beliefs. You, let's say two beliefs. And if you believe one thing, it, it doesn't jive with the other one that you believe and vice versa. So you hold mutually excu- exclusive beliefs, but you modify your thoughts in order to uh, t- tamp down the chaos and, and, the, and the turmoil that you're experiencing from believing both. So here's an example. You get up in the morning, you love bacon. You eat bacon every morning. You love the way it tastes. But also, you work for PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and you spend your whole life crusade freeing the pigs from cages. But then next morning, you eat the bacon again. So cognitive dissonance would be a way for you to justify that you eat bacon every morning, but you're trying to free the pigs. You see where I'm going with this? So this is an actual term. And what folks do... I really believe, my experience is that people who say they don't believe in God or the Bible's contradictory, and I show them some things, I don't really believe they don't believe in God. I believe they're not ready. They're not ready for this, this venture, right? This, this situation. And they have sort of a cognitive dissonance because they're faced with the truth, but they're not ready. So they default to, well, God is not real. Well, how do you know? Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Then you get closer, and then they either get upset, or they say, listen, I'm just not ready. I don't want to talk about this anymore. They get uncomfortable. And what God is doing, he's trying to break through that. And he tries to do that today as well. And it's amazing. Just with simple words, black and white words on on a page. They have so much power to them. But he's calling, verse 9, this assembly of nations. And he's saying... To the nations, who can do what I do? How can, does, can anybody make future events happen and then prophesy it oftentimes a hundred or millennia in advance? Who can do that, God says? The answer is nobody. And similar to the courtroom that we spoke about last Sunday is, he says, bring out your witnesses and have them testify. And we talked about courtrooms today. is something called cross-examination or a voir dire-ing, Right? These are terms in our jurisprudence that we get from The scripture came first, right? Very good terms. So he says, let's see if anybody has truth. Let's see if anyone can justify themselves. Well, we can't justify ourselves. That's a real problem. Now, just a a quick aside is, the Jehovah Witnesses actually take this verse to be themselves. And some of what I do here, when when we run into it, I, I have to discuss it. Um, that's kind of ridiculous because God's witnesses were Israel contextually. God basically says, if you read the word, he goes, watch Israel. Watch how they started. Watch um, the trials they go through. Watch them being removed from their land. Watch me bring them back into their land. And again, they made their own problems. But God, a lot of times, well, all the time, showed mercy. And when they repented, he would you know, bring them back. So God is saying, look at Israel. They're my witnesses. And if you follow Israel, really that's a proof that God exists. If, I don't know if you've, any of you followed the 1973 Yom Kippur War in our modern times. They were surrounded everywhere. 
And the enemies took advantage of the fact that it was Yom, Yom Kippur, and they didn't have the military as battle-ready as they could have been. They were attacked from Egypt, from Syria. Uh, money was pouring in, tanks, jets. They should have been annihilated. But God did not allow them to be annihilated because he said he wouldn't. You can look at the Six-Day War. You can look at all these wars where, I mean, you look at that little speck the size of New Jersey, and all these nations came against them, right? And they survived. So watch Israel. That's a, a witness. That's a, you know. The Jehovah Witnesses, unfortunately, they're anachronistic. They're out of time. They came around in the late 1800s, and they took this term, but God was speaking, and this is why you've got to know your Bible. God was speaking contextually to Israel. This has nothing to do with a group that came some 2,500 years later that has nothing to do with the land, the area, the circumstances, etc. So I felt like I needed to kind of clarify that. He also says, I'm the only Savior, right? Watch me save. And he's done that many a times. Now here's something interesting. In John 10, 28, Jesus says the same things, a lot of the same things that, that the Father says in the Old Testament. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, that he gives them, his followers, eternal life. Remember, God said there's no God before him and no God afterwards. Now Jesus is saying, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's a pretty powerful statement. So here's what we come to. Either there's more than one God, which God says there wouldn't be, or Jesus wasn't who he said he was, or Jesus was fully God and fully man. Again, this is logic. <laughs> I'm glad I had the, uh, the, the opportunity to take was it logic, reasoning, and persuasion many years ago at Rutgers? And that was one of my favorite courses. You know, if A equals B, right, and you kind of go through that logic, it makes sense. So we can only come, we can't have cognitive dissonance. We have to come to a conclusion. Is Jesus fully God, truly God, or is he a raving lunatic, or worse, a demonically inspired person? So people say, well, and I, the reason I say it, well, Jesus was a good man, he was a good prophet, he wasn't a good prophet if he was lying. So you really have to take that evidence and research it to see if these things are true because your eternal salvation depends on it. It's pretty powerful. If we could put up the image too. Now, this is, I don't know, a wheel. This was uh, developed by the Setnars. The Setnars were in high echelon in Jehovah Witness leadership for long, decades. They found the truth, they came out, and they actually wrote a lot about what they experienced. It's, a, it's not real Christianity, it's a pseudo-belief system. What they did was they showed, because JWs believed, well, Jesus wasn't Almighty God, the Father is Almighty God, Jesus is a lesser God. That makes you a polytheist, and that's a problem. This is really cool. Uh, early as a Christian, I, I saw this wheel and I saved it. If you look at this line... Above the line are all the names, well, let, let's start with the bottom. Below the line are all the names in the Scripture that the Father says about himself. He says, I'm the Savior, Scripture reference. I'm the rock, I'm the first and the last, I'm the I am, I'm God, creator, light, judge, all these things. In the New Testament, it's above the line. You see, remember I talked about counterparts. You see, uh, you know, uh, God says he's the creator down here. Across here to the New Testament spoken of as Jesus the Creator. Jesus as the light, right? Scriptures to counterpart scriptures. The judge, 
Lord of Lords, King of Kings. I am the first and the last. God. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So again, when you take the Old and New Testaments together, you have the Old Testament where God says, I'm the only God. Well, when the Father, Son, Holy Spirit speak, the Godhead, well, they're speaking about themselves. It's God speaking about Himself. The whole idea of the Trinity is a little, a little hard to wrap your mind around, but honestly, if we could wrap our mind around every single thing that God is, wouldn't that make us God? So, God explains Himself, and He reveals what He needs. Us, we're, we're on a need-to-know basis. Right? He reveals to us what we need to know, but He reveals enough that we can reason in our minds and say, you know what, this is God. So pretty cool stuff. JWs don't believe that Jesus was God. They thought he was just a good man. But you can't hold that theory when you take the Scripture in its totality. I don't care what version you're looking at. The evidence is there. There's like a few dozen Scriptures up there. But it's pretty neat. Now this is, this is what I do. Every so often, I put apologetics into my lessons because many of you come up to me and say, hey, I have a coworker, I have a family member, and I just I can't articulate what I feel inside my belief system, what the Holy Spirit is showing me. I have the 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 under, I have the I know that it's Him, but I can't articulate it. And that's why I put these these things in the messages so that you can articulate it. And again, you bring somebody to a crossroads. You either follow Jesus or you don't. You either Jesus really is God or He's not, and there's implications to both. And your eternal salvation depends on that. So, back to the Scripture at hand. God is appealing to humanity back in this some 2,700 years ago. But He's also appealing to humanity today. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea. He's actually saying to a church, I stand at the door and knock. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing. Are you going to let me in or not? Now, he's saying this to a church. So in every church organization across the earth, 24 hours, you know, 365 a year, through the Word, we either are believers or we're not. But we have to be faced with that crossroads to make that decision. Because there's no turning back once you have that information. Cognitive dissonance. I didn't hear that today. I don't remember anything he said. I don't remember any scripture no, no, you did hear it. <laughs> and you will be held responsible for what you hear, period. Verse 14, we continue. He says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. The Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. To give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Three out of five is the Lord is going to humble. Again, before it happens, he tells them, don't worry, I'm going to humble Babylon. Now, before you feel sorry for Babylon, they were very wicked. They did a lot of evil things. They, 
you know, um, God allowed them to be, well, you know, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't control everything we do, but he is involved in the affairs of mankind. So they did rise to power. They were pretty smart militarily, and he let them, gave them some lead. But then at some point, he had to stop it. He couldn't let, you know, people thought Rome would last forever. You can see how that turned out, right? But three, the Lord humbles Babylon. And he gives uh, allusions to what happened in Egypt with the horse and the army and the chariot and the, the way through the sea, and they, they didn't rise again. So when they went through the Red Sea, you know, the Lord closed the waters again, and many perished in that situation. So what he's saying to them is that just like I gave you clear passage in Egypt, I'm going to give you clear passage in Babylon. And, and this is interesting because people do this. Some might have thought, oh, yeah, those stories about Egypt while they were in Babylon. And then they saw, wow, it's happening right now. And people do that today. Well, those stories 2,000 years ago, but the, you see all these layers of things that God did. If you read Revelation and a lot of the prophetic books, you'll find that there's things he's doing right now as we speak. Miracles, incredible aligning of certain nations. You can't deny it. Nobody could predict these things. Statistically, they're in an, an impossibility, especially the nations that are lining up over the, across the Golan Heights as we speak. Statistical impossibility that anybody could have guessed these things, right? So it's, it's very fascinating. And, you know, you, you, can, you can almost see, and, and we can look at our lives too, where uh, the Israelites look back and they say, wow, um, yeah, we were delivered. You ever go through a difficult part of your life and then, you know, a year goes by and you look back and you go, how did I make it through that? <laughs> Apparently a lot of you have done that. I hear a lot of groans. You might be going through that right now. But I really want to encourage you. You know, I, I don't stand up here and talk about some history lesson and some, some nice platitudes from the past. God is doing a miracle in every era. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, verse 18 through 19, he says, Don't remember the old. I will do a new thing. Why? Because, and, and this isn't talked about a lot in church. You know, just do it. Just read the Bible. Just, just. Sometimes we, we stumble. Sometimes we go through emotional issues, don't we? Well, the Israelites were in captivity. I mean, talk about an emotional issue. Their sovereignty was taken away. They were completely humbled. They were humiliated. They couldn't boast any military like the other countries. They were over a thousand miles away from their home against their will. So God is trying to, is trying to minister to them. Listen, you repented. Let's forget about the past. Watch these new things that I'm going to do. And folks... Folks, I see it all the time as Christians. We can get into, especially as we get older in life, because it's just a time thing. We look back and we, oh, I, I this, and it's like a rut of regret, of failure, of some event that happens in our life, and we just keep, we, we, it's almost like we keep bringing ourselves back to that and tormenting ourselves. Now, people have, that don't know God have this idea that God is, is, is mean and all this kind of stuff. no. God's the one who's trying to pull us out of the past and bring us into the present. Whatever. You know, you came to the Lord, let's say you came to the Lord at 70. Oh, look at all the years I wasted. No, look at the years that you may have in front of you that God can use you in a mighty way. We've got to stop doing that to ourselves. And we do, right? We do. We can shackle ourselves. And it's just this weird uh, 
uh, weird uh, reverse kind of identity thing where, well, if I come to God, I don't know what He's going to do with me. I don't know what He's going to make me do. Meanwhile, we're living in the shackles of our own self-directed life. And I, can, I, can I be honest with you? That was me. I, I heard the, from, the, from a teenager, I heard the gospel. It took me till 26 years old to finally be smart and say, well, you know what, I, he's been following me my whole life, you know. Let me see what this is about, right? Give him a chance. This is God we're talking about. He's not like cruel people in this area. He's, he's God. He, he wants only good for you. Read the words and let them sink in. Uh, and that, that's another thing. And people say, well, I went to this church and they say, I have to read so many chapters every day. I don't say that. You know why? Because if you're forced to do, and a lot of these pseudo-religions do that. You know, you have to knock on so many doors. You have to give out so many tracts. It's a works-based thing. When you read the scripture and you read a few verses and those verses minister to you, great. It's better than reading five chapters and it, it all goes over your head. Amen. Got an amen back there. So, verse 22, let's continue. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have, you have been weary of me. Imagine God saying that to his people. You have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings. You have not honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me or bought me no sweet cane with money, you have, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So four out of five is the faithless Israelites. Why is God bringing these things up? He wants them to make a new start, but he doesn't want them to get into that rut of failure again. All right? Um, hopefully when we have trials, for me, I try to learn from my trials. Oh, I'm not going to do that again. That was really dumb. I really suffered for that one. So hopefully we learn from these things. But what, have hap- what has happened? He says, you have not, you have not, you have not. These are what we would call sins of omission, right? Not doing what we should have done. And he says, you have not called upon me. Folks, if you, are, you, you have a best friend, uh, if you have a spouse, you know, parents and children, when we stop communicating with each other, when we stop showing grace to each other, when we stop forgiving each other, when we stop doing for the ones we love, especially in a marriage, what's going to happen 10 years down the road? Mm-hmm. You know the answer to that. God is saying, I love you. You have to understand the tone in which he's speaking. You left me. Imagine God saying to his people, I didn't leave you. You left me. Right? Don't do that. Don't do that. It's, a, it's like that slow fade. It starts somewhere and things are good and we don't put anything into the relationship. I mean, we're talking about God. And then we find ourselves distant from God. Oh, God, where'd you go? He didn't go anywhere. We did. We drift. Kind of reminds me, and it's, it's based on biblical themes that I actually read at a funeral of a, a woman who was a believer on Friday. Um, she loved footprints in the sand. And it's, it's a perspective check. Lord, it's only one set of footprints. God's like, you don't get it. Those were mine. I carried you through that period of life. Sometimes our, our perspective is way off kilter, right? And he was saying, you were weary of me? I did that so that your sins can be atoned for. He's saying, 
And he goes back to the Israelites and says, you have burdened me with your constant sinning and your sins of omission. Let's get this straight. And folks, as Christians, and and this has helped me too, I don't know, having an issue with somebody, um, just just this issue, you know, and and, and I just stop sometimes and say to myself, you know, what, what did I do? How did I contribute to this? How did I cause this situation? And there are plenty of Christians, unfortunately, who only see things their way. No matter who it is, no matter who they're warring with, they're always right. Well, sometimes you've got to look in the mirror and say, what, what part did I play in this split, in this schism? Good questions to ask. To think that God is wearying us or He has too many burdens, we compl- we're missing the point. It's a dysfunctional understanding of who God is. I want to read to you, this is going to be the last scripture that I use uh, for the morning, is Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. It's a short scripture. I've given this, I, I have cards that have the church address and on the other side is this scripture. I've given it to people, serving my food, um, going to the car wash, just strike up a conversation Let them know God loves them. I've had people read it and just start crying. But Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Let's let's get a right perspective. He says, Come to me, all of you, who labor and are heavy laden, and I I will give you rest. He doesn't mean people that just work with their hands. He's speaking about emotionally, speaking about spiritually. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke or my pack upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I'm meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest, peace. That doesn't mean the trials are going to go away, but it means internally there's a change happening. He goes, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And when we, be, when we become Bible literate, we really understand what a loving God we serve. When we listen to our friends and, you know, what did I do this weekend? And they're saying this. And, or we watch TV. Oh, that's the best one. You know, get your spiritual uh, food from TV. You know what I'm saying? You're laughing. Some of the ridiculous things that I see on TV about what they say about the Bible. And they, they go unchallenged. Get your information from the Scripture. Last few verses. 25. He says... I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. A transgression was a willful sin to go across God's law and do it anyway. For my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case. He does that again. That you may be acquitted or justify yourself. Can you do that? Your first father sinned, meaning Adam, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Right? Um, some of the prophets, uh, the priests. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Now, this needs some explaining. Five out of five is, so four was the faithless Israelites. And sometimes we in the church can be faithless to God because we still sin. And the last, we, we ended on the note of the faithful God and Redeemer. The faithful God and Redeemer. What he shows is that sin is endemic to the human race, be it Adam, be it the patriarchs, be it the priests, be it the religious system. He set up a perfect system, but as we do, sinful human beings, you know, we destroyed it. And if they didn't destroy it, we would have destroyed it, I'm sure. 
Um, so God had no choice but to give them over to, don't, don't misunderstand curse the way we understand it in our culture. This was a consequence of the sin. Um, God just couldn't, they were doing uh, really awful things to their children. They were bringing pornographic and horrible demonic things into the temple, into God's sacred temple. So God just was like, I, I can't be a part of this. Well, guess what happened? They lost their protection. One of the reasons why they were overcome by Babylon in the first place. So we're kind of coming back to the beginning here. However, God was faithful as we see the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. God is always waiting for prodigals to come back to him for him to receive them with open arms. And this is what we have to do. He says, verse 26, he says, let us contend together. God is reasoning with mankind uh, that your case, your case that you might be acquitted or you might be justified. And people do that today. God, you know, you, you read through the scripture and you say, well, I deserve to get into heaven because I never killed anybody. Okay. All right. Well, what about stealing? Well, what about, you got to go through these things. Again, uh, I, I took statistics in college too. What would be the median sin? Does that mean all sins above that are bad and the ones below that are good? Well, what if somebody else, the median sin is a different sin? right? The standards are, are too ambiguous. Uh, what about the mean sin, the weighting of sin, right? I might weigh sin higher than, than you might, and here we are. Where No, no one's going to come to an agreement, billions of people on the planet. So he's saying the fairest way, and this is where we go back to the beginning, is the way that God provided. It's almost like verse 25 should really be at the end, because understand chapter 44 Chapters only came hundreds of years later. I'm only stopping it here because of time and because it's grouped nicely in, in the Old Testament. But he continues. This goes all the way through Isaiah. So for the sake of stopping it here, let me read 25 again. He says, I, even I. God says, only me. And when he repeats himself, it's something for us to really pay attention to. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So, at the end, what happens? We're faithful. I mean, we're faithless, but he's faithful. We could argue and, and talk silly stuff about how, who's going to get to heaven and why they should and how we should demand that we knock on the door and God's going to let us in. God's like, no, I'm going to fix it because I have to because sin is that destructive. So what happened was God is saying, and he's, he's prophesying, there was a temporary system of, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. If you would have done this, your sins would be covered. However, Israelites, look forward to the first century when I send my Messiah, when I send God the Son, right? Fully God, fully man, to come to die on the cross to completely destroy sin once and for all. And that's it. That's the end of it. And that's beautiful because it's not by something we do. It's not based on our popularity. It's not based on our physical ability. It's a completely fair system. Is believing in Christ's finished work on the cross. And everything in the Old Testament points to that event. The prophets, the law, the priesthood, Moses. You can go through every single thing and I can show you that it points to Christ on the cross. So as we close this morning... Do you know Jesus? And if you don't and you're still considering it, definitely investigate it because your eternal salvation depends on that. 
Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.